to us. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 23, we'll actually begin at the end of chapter 22 and verse 30, and then read the entirety of chapter 23. There we read. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he bound him, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees says there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There are more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and enters the barracks and told Paul. Paul called out one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? He says, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded for them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antiochus. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. If you are a parent or a grandparent, then no doubt you have experienced something that I'm going to tell you about in incidents that happens in your home. When the children break something or someone gets hurt, but you were not around when this incident took place. And so you as a parent must go into investigative interrogation mode. You must put on your Sherlock Holmes hat to find out what happened and who is the guilty party. And what you find out from your inquiry is that there is complete denial by all parties. Everyone is innocent, everyone is pure as the driven snow. And all you hear is, I did not do it, I did not do it, I did not do it, from everyone. And you say, well, somebody did it, we have a broken lamp, the lamp did not break itself. And so in such occasions, I don't know if you do this, but I pull out my best Solomon verdict and say, well, okay, since no one is willing to confess, All are going to be disciplined. (laughs) Punishment all around. No TV, no treats, no fun. Until the truth comes out. And it's typically then or soon thereafter, the guilty party breaks. (laughs) Little eyes begin to swell up with tears and confession begins. I did it. And you don't know if it's because of the punishment or a guilty conscience, but either way you'll take it. Now, this works well with younger children, but I'm learning as my children now get older, wrongdoing is not as always as blatant or obvious as a broken lamp. There are more independence. There's more independence with your children. They're not around all the time. You're not around them. And so you don't always know what's always taking place or what's going on. And so I have told my children and no doubt will tell them again. You can get away with a lot of things without mom or dad ever knowing. But just remember this. God always knows. And ultimately, you don't have to deal with us. You have to deal with him. And that's not just true of children, is it? That is true of us all. Heart, mind, body, and soul must all give an account before our God, our Creator, and our maker. This morning in our passage, we see something similar. Paul is put on trial, wrongfully so. In the rest of the book of Acts, Paul will essentially be appealing his case and his cause. Even though he is surrendered to the sovereignty of God, he does not cease to make appeals. And I think this is something that we can learn from Paul, especially in the face of increased hostility in our culture, how to act rightly and appropriately and justly 
even in the light of false accusations. And what I think we see from Paul, both in this chapter as well as the the rest of the book, is that Paul does not roll over. He is not a doormat. He acts in integrity. He acts in respect, even when others are not. And so this morning we'll see his three appeals, and those will be our three points. The appeal to one's life and conscience, the appeal to men, and the appeal to God. First, the appeal to one's life and conscience. Just as a reminder of where we're at here in the narrative, Paul was accosted in the temple as he returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. There he went to the temple, and there in the temple he was dragged out and beaten and abused by those that were seemingly worshipers there at the temple. The scene caused such a commotion that the Romans have to come in and essentially rescue Paul from being killed by such a crowd. To which Paul asks the Roman official if he may address the crowd. To which Paul does, as we saw last week. They listen, but in the end they are more infuriated. And as a result, this Roman official must take Paul away. And there in the barracks, they discover that he is a Roman citizen, which complicates things, at least for this Roman official. He cannot just beat or imprison or even execute Paul for expedient sake, like they did our Lord. This Roman official must find out what is happening. He must give just cause and therefore act properly as a Roman official, lest he would be cause of wrongdoing in the Roman Empire. And so it says in verse 30 of chapter 22, he desired to know the real reason why this man was being accused by the Jews. And so he calls together the Jewish magistrates, the Jerusalem council, those that were Pharisees and Sadducees. And you might ask, why would he do this? Were not the Romans the ones that ruled at this time? And the answer is yes, they were. But this is how the Romans maintained rule and peace. They allowed the Jews to rule over certain matters. Of course, underneath the umbrella of the Roman Empire. They gave them some power and some control, allowed them to do some Jewish-type things. And no doubt this Roman official thought this would be the best way to handle this situation. That if he allows this Roman, or excuse me, this Jewish council to come together to decide on this religious matter, that they will be able to straighten things out. No doubt they will be able to make more sense of this than that angry mob that is out there. No doubt they will be more sensible and they will probably find him to be innocent and therefore he can let go this Roman citizen and therefore problem solved. He can go back to his wine and cheese or whatever he was doing before. But things do not go the way that this Roman official desired. As we see, Paul is brought before this council and you really have to understand the scene. In many ways, you've got to understand the irony of this situation. Here is Paul before this council of esteemed Jews. This would have been the who's who 
of the Jews. Dressed in such a way that you would know that they are the who's who of the Jews. And the irony of this, as I mentioned, was that Paul at one time was a who's who of the Jews. We don't believe he was actually on this council, but no doubt if the Lord did not radically alter his journey, his life, he would have been. And as Paul stood before them, he must have thought, I used to idolize these men. I used to want to be these men. I wanted to be the the top, the best. Everyone looking to me like everyone looks to this council. Now what a change. What a difference. And even though Paul was in prison, no doubt he was thinking, though I was once free when I was like them, I was imprisoned in my own sin. And now I'm in prison, but yet I am free in Christ Jesus. It's a good reminder to us, isn't it, that the top of the ladder, the top of the mountain is never what you think it's going to be. And if your identity is not in Christ, then it does not matter if you are the best of the best. And whatever you are called to be the best at the best in, you'll still be miserable, right? Because being the very best of the best of anything in this earth will never fulfill Just look at the top actors or the top athletes or the top CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and ask yourself, do they look happy now that they have made it? Often they do not, do they? In fact, often their despair seems even worse. Why? Because they have everything and yet have nothing. Nothing of value, nothing of substance. It's all vanity. They are still searching, even though they are at the very top and there's nowhere else to go. It's a reminder of where to put our hope truly in. Reminder where our contentment is ultimately found. It's not found in the things of this earth. Paul had found it, not through the way that he thought he would have found it many years before, but through Christ. And this is the very group that he now finds himself before, the very council Jesus found himself before in the night of his betrayal. But look at what Paul says in verse 1. It's a beautiful statement. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God. I have lived my life before God. What a radical shift, as I mentioned, in Paul's life. That this conversion had taken place so much so that he can say, now I live my life before God Almighty. No doubt before he thought he lived his life before God. But in reality, as I think we see through the rest of his letters, he really lived his life before men, didn't he? He was proud of his pedigree, where he came from, what he was able to do, that which he was doing. He was able to demonstrate great external righteousness. So much so that he could say that I was zealous more than anyone else. And we heard a little bit of that when he addressed the crowd. He essentially told the crowd, I'm, I was a much better Jew than all of you. But then I literally came face to face with Jesus. And that changed everything. Now I counted all rubbish for the sake of Christ. Now I live my life before God. I live my life quorum Deo before the face of God. And ultimately, I want to, to please Him and please Him alone. It's a good reminder, isn't it? 
And when it's all said and done, we must give an account to only one. Yes, we want to do a good job for our managers. Yes, we want to do a good job for our boss. Yes, we want to do a good job for our customers or for our family and for our spouses. That's ultimately true, but only one's opinion ultimately matters, doesn't it? And that is God himself. And is he well pleased? Is he praised by our work? Because it matters not if you get the praises of men, but you do not have the praise of God. If in the end you do not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, then I tell you what, it's all for naught. If you only hear, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, then it matters not what you have achieved in this life. You remember back in chapter 12, Herod stood before the men to receive their praises, and they praised him, didn't they? The voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod took it unto himself. He took that glory. And as a result, God struck him dead. And he was eaten by worms. So utterly humiliated. In the very end, it demonstrated that the worms of the earth proved to be more powerful than him. And it demonstrates, does it not, that we have no power. We have no prestige. We have no praise that we can give ourselves. It's all given to us by God. We live before Him and Him alone. And so we live our life before God. But Paul says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul appeals to his conscience and says, my conscience is clear. You may think I'm guilty. Everybody may think I'm guilty. But my conscience is clear before God. My conscience does not accuse me. I've acted in integrity. I've acted in righteousness. And this is so very important. It's only through having a good conscience, a clear conscience, that we can have peace with God and with man. And you must have a good conscience first and foremost With God. As I mentioned just moments ago, He alone is the one. And we must ultimately give an account to. He is the judge. No one else. And therefore we live our lives before Him and for Him alone. And so, therefore, do you have such a good conscience? Right now. In this very moment. Not next Tuesday or or, or a week from now or a month from now or if you could spend an hour in prayer then you might have a good conscience but do you have a good conscience before God in this very moment if you are called into his presence which by the way you are in his presence that's what we do at the very beginning of the service the call to worship right can you say Lord I'm ready Lord I am good here I am Lord And it's not because you are good in and of yourself, that is far from it, but it's because you are good through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made you good. His blood, His righteousness covers you. You have an advocate sitting in the heavenly realms that represents you at this very moment. You and all that are His own. And so therefore you can say like Job does in the midst of his trials in the midst of his tribulations even in the midst of his persecutors which were his friends unfortunately he can say my redeemer lives 
my advocate, my savior lives. And he could stand before a holy God as a guiltless man. And so to you, can you do the same? Do you come into this place? Are you a guiltless man or woman or boy or girl in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, and I hope you can say that, what a gift that is, is it not? When you can say, my, my mind, my heart, my soul, they are clean because of Christ. It gives you wonderful confidence, doesn't it? Likewise, we are to have a clean and clear conscience, not only before God, but before others. So that means when we are guilty, when we sin against one another, we are to quit. We are to be quick to confess and to repent. And when we are falsely accused and we are slandered and we are reviled, we can be at peace, as Paul was in this very situation. But I tell you what, it, it takes a lot of heart inspection, a lot of self-inspection in order to have a clean and clear conscience. And therefore, it needs to be something that we do and, and do often. If you want your conscience to remain tender, if you do not want it to be hardened, then I would say you have to do this daily. Meaning that we come before the Lord when we have sinned against God, we confess that sin to God. When we have sinned against one another, we confess it to God and then we confess it to one another. By the way, not just by saying, I'm sorry. Sorry is just stating a feeling. To confess your sins, you actually have to say, I am sorry, please forgive me. It's a wonderful tip in marriage and children with your parents and parents with your children. You must live your life continually this way. Not with a morbid introspection, or not to have such sensitivity that you are always confessing every perceived wrong that you might have done or might have said. No, you're to confess actual offenses. And you know when those happen, don't you? And if you live your life that way, I tell you what, it's first of all not enjoyable. It's hard. Why? Because you, you quickly find yourself... To, to realize, if you haven't already, that you're a wretched sinner and that you sin a lot. But in order to recognize your sinfulness, you have to recognize the need of your confession. But even more powerfully, you need to recognize the freedom that is in the forgiveness of sins that God gives to us through the Lord Jesus Christ that we are able to freely give one to another. And I tell you what happens if you live your life this way, you have peace. You have peace. You have peace with God and you have peace with one another. You can put your head down on the pillow every night and, and sleep deeply. You can sleep like a baby even though you're going through the worst of trials or the worst of tribulations or the whole world is against you. There's nothing that can substitute a good conscience before the Lord. There is no alternatives. There are no substitutes. You cannot pacify a guilty conscience with anything on earth. You can try to put it away. You can try to hide it. You can try to put it in the closet. But it's always there, isn't it? It gnaws away at you. It's only the blood of Christ through the confession of sins 
that rids our sin and sinfulness. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32. He says, oh, what joy there is for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record the Lord and have a clear conscience, who live their lives in complete honesty. But then listen to what else he says. When I refused to confess my sins, my body wasted away. I groaned all the day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. You hear what David is saying. Oh, what joy there is when we come clean. When we confess our sins. When we keep nothing hidden anymore. But oh, what agony there is when we try to hide it. He says, literally, we waste away. And so, again, having a clear conscience does not mean that we are sinless. Far from it. It means that we are to live in such a way that we are quick to confess before God and men. And Paul, again, is a a wonderful example of this. He, in verse 2, is struck by a man that is commanded to do so by Ananias, the high priest. And and notice what Paul does. He, He lashes out. He says in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be be struck. Now, that which Paul said, was it untrue? No. And yet, Paul's actions are called into question by the bystanders. They are offended at his words. And so look what Paul does. He confesses. He says, I I did not know that he was the high priest for his written. You shall not speak of a ruler of your people. He realizes that when he is spoken in a way that was derogatory or unrespectful of the high priest, he confesses his sin. He doesn't try to, uh, you know, make it right. Or he doesn't try to say, well, you know what, that's not quite what I meant or that's not what I said or try to justify his actions or even try to say, but he is a whitewashed too. No, he confesses. He realizes he has broken the fifth commandment to honor the authorities above you. He specifically quotes Exodus 22 and verse 28. Even though this man was in many ways a joke of a high priest. His wrongdoing. That Paul does. is something that he quickly confesses of. He realizes the manner in which he spoke was dishonoring. Which, side note, we need to perhaps put a guard over our mouth in the way that we speak about our leaders. From Paul's example, don't we? Pray for your leaders. Do speak evil against them. Paul humbly admits wrong. And that's why, that's why, he could have a clear conscience. And us too. And, and what I love it demonstrates about this point is the point that, that Luke includes this is it demonstrates that Paul's a sinner, isn't he? And that he needed to confess and that he needed to repent. And if Paul the sinner can have a good conscience before God and man, and so too sinners like you and like me, we must strive always for it in Christ. The, the remedy is, is given to us. Well, second, he appeals to man just as he had a clear conscience does not mean that he remains silent. No, Paul sought his freedom. He uses his Roman citizenship. 
He appeals on every level. And in fact, we, we see something very interesting here. He, he appeals even to the crowd that is there. Noticing in verse 6, as it says, that he perceived that there was Pharisees and that there was Sadducees. And so Paul does something very shrewdly. He says, I am on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. Now, why was that such a well-played card in that moment? Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so by Paul saying this, he is igniting a theological bomb. This would be like in a group of Presbyterians and Baptists saying, what do you all think about baptism? (laughs) If you do that, wait for the fireworks to begin, right? It's theological dynamite. And Paul knew what he was doing. He did it on purpose. He was intentionally stirring the pot, as we say. Why? Because I think he shrewdly knew that he would not get a fair hearing before this council. That they were hardened. They were impartial. And Paul would rather use the civil authorities for a fair hearing than the religious leaders of that day. It's pretty indicting. And what we see in the rest of the book of Acts is him doing that, going through the appeals process of the Roman tribune here and to Governor Felix and to King Agrippa. And we believe that his case went all the way up to Caesar himself. Why? Because these leaders had obligation to give justice. Now, did the justice system uh, in this case prevail? No, unfortunately not. Does not stop him from being imprisoned and ultimately losing his life. But we see that there was a good legal system in place. And likewise, we don't have a perfect legal system in our day and age. But we do have legal resources at our disposal. And the justice system that we have here in the United States is part of good, God's good providence to us. And so when right and when necessary, we are to, to use it to, to plead our case, to plead our cause. We can appeal to men. And so, let me say publicly, something that you don't hear every day, thank you lawyers. <laughs> and thank you those that work in the legal field. To bring about good and right justice. It's needed. It's part of God's good provision on this earth. And so let us appreciate our lawyers. And then you can go on and use lawyer jokes, okay? But there is a right to appeal to, to man. But there is one that we are to also appeal to. And that is our third point that... Paul doesn't just appeal to himself and his own life, his own conscience. He doesn't just appeal to mankind. He appeals to God. Because of this dissension, the Roman officials need to get Paul out of there. And he's brought back to the barracks. And I think there Paul finds himself unsure of what is taking place. No doubt, even though Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, As we do, there are times when such situations and circumstances can make us awfully lonely, can't they? They can be very difficult. They can be very hard. And no doubt it was in the darkness of that prison cell that doubt probably crept in. And Paul began to think, what if? 
What if he had done this? What if he had done that? Perhaps he thought, you know what? All of those churches on my third missionary journey were telling me not to go back to Jerusalem. And yet I went in such confidence, such hope. But now here I am in this stinking prison cell. Did I do the right thing or did I do the wrong thing? And therefore he had to make an appeal before God. And what do we read? Well, verse 11 that Jesus comes to him in the night by a dream, in person, in a vision. We don't know, but he says, take courage. Take courage. Do you think Paul was discouraged? I think he was. But he says, take courage. Just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. What an answer to prayer. It was one of those moments where the Lord comes to Paul and says, relax, Paul. Just be reminded, I am in control. I am in charge. Nothing will thwart my plans. I am the sovereign king of kings and Lord of lords. There's not one random molecule outside of my control, let alone this. It's what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 as a part of that Sermon on the Mount when he says, look to the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Is that true of us? Yes, it is true of us. Oftentimes we might be tempted to read a passage like this and see Jesus coming to Paul and go, well, of course Jesus comes to Paul. Paul was a somebody. I'm a nobody. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my situation. He has far greater and bigger things than what's going on in my life. Do you hear what Jesus says? God says, do I not care for the sparrows? And are you not greater than that? Are you not greater of the birds of the air, the flowers of the field? And do not I provide for all of them? Will I not provide for you in this as well. Indeed, he will. If Paul can be provided for by the Lord in this moment, and if God can take care of the sparrows, then we can be confident he can take care of us in whatever situation and circumstance that we go through. Now, his care may take very interesting twists and turns, just like it does for Paul. After the Lord says, You will testify me of about me in Rome, it's not like the next day Paul was on a jet plane to Rome, was he? No, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in between. We read of a plot to kill Paul. Forty men that take an oath that says, we will neither eat nor sleep until this man, uh, eat or drink until this man is killed. And then we read of Paul's nephew. Where did Paul's nephew come from? I have no idea. But somehow Paul's nephew arrives and hears of this plot and tells Paul. And Paul tells him to go tell the the Roman official. And this Roman official not only listens and hears, but believes what this young man is saying. And does something about it. So much so that it says that 400 Roman soldiers were used to accompany Paul to Caesarea. And even Paul has a horse to ride upon. Can you imagine that? Here's little itty-bitty Paul 
on a horse, surrounded by 400 Roman soldiers. It's pretty secure. So secure that I wonder if Paul could thumb his nose at those that were hiding in the bush trying to kill him. Kind of do one of these, you know? So he rode by. Or maybe that's just what I would have done. Probably not Paul. But his security didn't ultimately come from the Romans, did it? It came from the Lord. And the Lord used the Romans and the Roman soldiers. And that, my friend, is where it always comes from. See, when you have a clear conscience before God and before men, then you are in the very best place possible. No matter when the storms of life will come, be it persecution, be it trial, be it tribulation, be it death itself, you can face it all. Why? Not because you can face it in your own strength, far from it, but because you have a God that stands beside you, that provides for you. You can be in the Lord's hand at all times and in all places. This was not only Paul's confidence, it was David's confidence, doesn't it? Isn't it? We don't have time to look at it, but Psalm 27 is a wonderful psalm of David that is a psalm of confidence. Where David can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now David and Paul were very active men. They were not the let go and let God type. They trusted the Lord and they acted. And David can say in that psalm, there's adversaries that assail me. There are armies that are encamped against me. There's a war that rises up against me. And yet, you can say throughout that psalm, all is good. God is in control. And the same thing here. Paul can say, the Jews want to kill me. The Jewish council wants to execute me. The Romans want to send me as a prisoner to Rome. And yet, all is good. I have a good conscience before God and man. And as I mentioned before, there is no better place to be. And it happens in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. The author of Hebrews can say that I can draw near with a heart that is in full assurance. I can have my heart sprinkled clean, my body washed with pure water, and as a result, it all is given to me as a part of a good conscience before God and before men. As we finish up, you remember Martin Luther was put on trial at the Diet of Worms and he was asked to give a defense and he gives a long speech, but the very end of it is the most famous where he can say, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. And therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. For to do so would be to go against conscience, which is neither right nor safe. God, help me. Amen. To hear what Luther says, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And it is very true. And so let me ask you once again, Brothers and sisters, is that the state of your conscience this day? Is it clear before men? As far as it is possible, as Romans 12 says, as much as it depends on you, are you at peace with all mankind? 
And are you at peace with God? So much so that you can say, Lord, you can give me a hundred more years or you can come back right now. Or you can take me to be with you. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, I am ready. I am yours, Lord. I am your servant. Let me live every day with that attitude. If that is, and I hope it is, then you can be strong. And you can have courage. Because you are in the very best, most secure place a man or woman on this earth could be. Both now, for all eternity. Because you're in the hands of the Almighty God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these stories. True stories, real stories, Lord, of your care, of your providence that was shown and demonstrated in the life of Paul. And Lord, such care and such providence is shown in our life every day. Would we have the eyes to see it? And Lord, when we become fearful, when we become anxious, when we wonder if I've made the right decision, made the wrong decision, Lord, would we rest secure again in who you are, that you are the God that cares for us and provides for us in every moment. You are the one that gives us our daily bread, not the least of which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the full forgiveness of all our sins so that we can be clean, that we can be clear, that we can stand in your presence, we can come into your presence right now even boldly, knowing that we are accepted and even well-pleasing because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we go forth this day with such bold confidence, as such witnesses of your love and of your grace, of your mercy in our life, that all the world may see. Would you make us, O Lord, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We pray this in Christ. Amen.